Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. of CD game show trolls, the smiling lie of the televised Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 64. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <coughs> Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. Headquartered, the timeline of the Monkey's Solar Years is out. Get it in paperback or hardback, and soon as an ebook on bearmannermedia.com or at Amazon. My co-author, Michael A. Ventrella, will be attending Beetlefest and selling and signing copies of it and our previous monkey book there. Uh, he will be attending at the end of March. I'm doing the final edits for the TTV scrapbook, and I will be turning it in soon. I just got the assignment to do articles for Back Issue Magazine on Hee Haw and on Sid and Marty Croft. Uh, the Warren Kremer book proof is back, and now we're doing final, final edits. I'm still working on my own Light Up Your Life travel agency, and of course, the Mad Book, and a possible new Disney book. He is the leading authority on Filmation Studios, and he's here to correct all my mistakes on my Filmation two-parter. He's also written many books, including books on Iron Man and Wonder Woman. Here he is, Andy Mangles. Alright, on the phone, I have Andy Mangles. How are you, Andy? I'm doing great, Mark. Good right. to be here. All right, and thank you for being a guest today. I uh, wanted to talk a bit about your career and mainly focusing on filmation because you apparently are the filmation expert in my mind and in my eyes. <laughs> um, but a little bit about yourself first. Uh, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into uh, writing about comics, collecting comics, and uh, how you got to be the filmation expert. Well, I was uh, born in 66, so it was actually uh, right about the time Filmation was in its startup days, and um, wasn't really, 
I didn't I didn't really get to see a lot of filmation early on because I lived in a little town in Montana hmm. that had one TV channel, <laughs> and that TV channel split between two networks. So you might you might see one network, uh, you know. 9 to 10 and then another network from 10 to 10 to 11 or something it was it was never clear what shows you were necessarily going to get from the schedule we could get other networks abc for instance came in from spokane but that was only if the weather was good and if we twisted the antennas around and you know so <laughs> forth yeah so it's it's amazing that i that i'm now you know, kind of considered one of the experts on animation in the 70s and 80s uh, and some of the 60s because I didn't really have a chance to uh, experience it as much as most people did. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, I was introduced to uh, to comics um, very early on, in about 1970, I, I think. 70, 71 was probably the first time I remember reading a comic. And uh, my the very first comic I owned was a Teen Titans issue called uh, The Killer Called Honey Bun, in which they <laughs> bought a, a giant uh, water tower-like robot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I utterly fell in love with Silver Age DC at that point. Uh, I, I don't think I saw a Marvel comic for another year or so, but I was so enthralled with the characters and uh, even just the, the, the little pictures that I saw. You know, there was there was an ad for an Aquaman comic where it had a... Uh, demonic arm holding him up out of the ocean and the 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 text was something like you know if aquaman doesn't uh, get in the water in the next hour he will die <laughs> and and you know i mean i was like what does that mean oh my goodness what is that what is that you know and and there this was during the time when wonder woman didn't have any powers right so my first the first time I remember seeing Wonder Woman was actually in an ad for Palisades Park, mm-hmm. which was a theme park in, I think it was New Jersey, yeah. and they had a, a Wonder Woman head and a Superman head and a Batman head, and I think that was my introduction to Wonder Woman mm-hmm. prior to prior to Super Friends in 1973, mm-hmm. and uh, then I, you know I discovered Super Friends and and Wonder Woman and and the whole DC universe kind of. It, on mass about that time mm-hmm. um, so uh, you know flash forward from from uh, my childhood to my teen years I was I, I was doing art in school and intended to try and become a comic book artist and uh when George Perez and Marv Wolfman revitalized the new Teen Titans, mm-hmm. Teen Titans had, had long long since become my favorite team book, although Wonder Woman and Aquaman were my favorite characters. Um, but uh, when George and Marv did uh, the Teen Titans books, I joined a what today would be called a uh, you know a, a online club or online bulletin board right. but it would uh, in those days they were called APAs, amateur press oh, associations yeah. or amateur publishing associations and what that was was people who were fans uh, 
say 50 of them would join this group and everyone would write or draw something whether it was text about you know what they thought about characters or fan fiction or fan art or things like that and then they would copy it 50 times send it into a central mailer who would collate it all and then send out a big phone book sized collation of of everybody's contributions to all the members Hmm. and uh i was so i joined really early on one called titan talk oh okay and titan talk was uh two of the other members was rob liefeld and hank canals (laughs) and um back in 85 i think it was uh, they told me that Fanagraph. I, I, at that point, I'd become kind of an expert on George Perez's career, and they told me Fanagraphics was doing a book mm-hmm. on on George, and that I should try and get some work on it. And I contacted them. You know, I was uh, I don't know, seventeen, eighteen, something like that. I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I was already in college. I I started college at sixteen. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, got my first published work as a writer in uh, the book Focus on George Perez in '85. Mm-hmm. And from there, started writing regularly for Amazing Heroes, and kind of became known as as the uh, the guy who was connected to Hollywood. <laughs> and at the time I started all my Hollywood writing, I was still living in Montana and was about as unconnected physically <laughs> as one could get. Mm-hmm. But I was I was really good at doing research and tracking things down and double-checking facts and, and so forth. So I eventually, you know, started writing a lot of columns for Amazing Heroes and then later Wizard fan magazine, uh, Hero Illustrated, and other magazines, Mm -hmm. and comics about the intersection of comics and Hollywood. (laughs) And uh, that then, you know, eventually led to... um, Harry Knowles uh, credits me as kind of the inspiration for when he started Ain't It Cool News. Mm -hmm. And a a lot of the people these days that write for online media sites um, really you know have said reading your stuff kind of gave me an idea that I could do the same type of thing and now they're doing it and I'm I'm an old man in the industry yes <laughs> <laughs> well I was so, uh, even though we're roughly the same age we're actually like two weeks apart if you really know that but uh, right um, I, I read all your stuff in Amazing Heroes and stuff and I said wow I wish I could do that and so it took right. me a little bit longer, but yeah. <laughs> so I know. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because my whole career, it was it was that conversation with Hank and Rob that really kind of changed everything. That that uh, made me think. Well, maybe I could write something. Mm-hmm. I'd always been a good writer in school, but it, it, that wasn't my, my path. Was to be a comic artist, mm-hmm. and. Um, I actually have old art that that I penciled and Rob inked and and he penciled and I inked and <laughs> you know <laughs> I have a lot of Teen Titans artwork from from when I was a teenager, uh, but uh, you know the the comic industry is not necessarily a steady 
a place for steady employment right. or a steady employment that's supportive of, of finances. <laughs> and so over the years, my career has kind of gone uh, closer to Hollywood, further away and closer again and further away again and so forth. <laughs> and I've, I've written now over 20 books, uh, a lot of them tying into Hollywood properties. I've written Star Wars books, Star Trek books, mm -hmm. X-Files, Roswell, a uh, book on the Iron Man movies. Um, you know, and, and they're all they're all either related to in a in a fictional way to to those properties or they're related in a non-fiction way um because again i i, I learned how to do good research mm -hmm. and um then i got directly involved with i'm probably covering all your questions here i just I, That's I, fine. I, I, i'm a talker <laughs> <laughs> That's what we um, like here on the fun on the fun ideas podcast. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. So I, uh, I I wrote a book. I had an idea to do a, a to do a series of books on DVD uh, thematic DVDs. So the first book I did was animation on DVD, The mm -hmm. Ultimate Guide, and there was a couple thousand. Uh, animated DVDs that I reviewed in there and um, and so my idea was don't just do a catalog of these do a, do a review and a history of each of these projects so in the um, in the entries for every DVD that was covered in the book um, I wrote like a little history about where the, where the project had come from when it was uh, when it was uh, broadcast or when it debuted or things like that some of the some of the creators that were behind each project some historical facts etc so it was it was both a a guidebook to what you could buy but it was also a historical uh, a useful historical book about animation mm -hmm. yeah. and and it covered at that point every animated DVD that had ever been released. Um, nobody's ever, People have found mistakes in the book, but no one's ever said, oh, you missed this one. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, at, at one point I got contacted by um, a company called BCI Eclipse. Okay. And they... Uh, they had literally one DVD that was reviewed in my book because they had only ever released one animated DVD, and that was Frady Cat, uh. Uh, which, which they were told by the people they got the film from that it was in public domain, and I informed them, no, no, that is a filmation property, and it is not in public domain. <laughs> but uh, interestingly, they, they contacted me and said, hey, we, uh, we got the rights to He-Man, uh, and the Masters of the Universe, and we we want to make sure that we put out a project that is everything the fans could want. Would you come down? Can we fly you down? And um, have you consult on the project? And you know, kind of talk us into what we should do to make this the best He-Man uh, DVD project. Mm -hmm. And I flew down for that meeting and left the meeting with a, a job to 
produce all the uh, eight different He-Man sets wow. <laughs> for, for the company. And those all did really, really well. Yeah. And that led to them deciding to take on the rest of the Filmation library. And so I produced over 40 DVD sets for them and later for Genius Entertainment and uh, Time Life. Now, did they have the rights to it or did they have to license it? They had to license okay. it. The, okay. The rights to all the filmation stuff, boy, it's been a mess over the years. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> uh, they originally were sold when the company shut down, the, the rights went to L'Oreal and then, uh, the, yes, the makeup company in yes. France. <laughs> And then they went to Hallmark. Hallmark had them for a long time, and they ended up, you know, there were several several companies. Um, then they finally ended up with uh, Classic Media in England, which was then com- combined and renamed to Entertainment Rights, okay. uh, and which held not just the Filmation Library, but other British projects as well, like Postman Pat oh, and, okay. uh, you know, some of British animation. Mm-hmm. And uh, recently, Entertainment Rights uh, and Classic Media were bought by Universal DreamWorks. Mm, yeah. And so now uh, DreamWorks owns, or owns the rights to all of the filmation materials that were owned by Filmation. Okay. <laughs> so there's Filmation a there's a qualifier on that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Filmation as a company licensed a lot of things themselves. Right. So depending on how they licensed it, depended on whether or not they owned it. For instance, all the Warner Brothers material, once Filmation went out of business, all the Warner Brothers material, Superman, Batman, Aquaman, uh, and et cetera, and Shazam all reverted back to Warner. They own that lock, stock, and barrel. Ah. And that's they don't have to pay. They don't have to pay any royalties to anybody at Filmation or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Jerry Lewis's estate owns uh, the... Um, Will the real Jerry Lewis please sit down? Oh, okay. And um, Paramount owns Star Trek. Right. And, and the Brady Kids. Mm. So, you know, some of the, some of the projects went to two other companies but the items that were purely owned by filmation ended up at, they're now in the hands of dreamworks got it um well jumping ahead it is a question i have and we were talking about the videos just now uh, it's like is there a chance of any of those being reissued to your knowledge uh, since BCIs are all long out of print and sometimes really pricey collector's items at this point? <laughs> well, you know, the, the the problem with reissuing them is not will they be reissued, it's will they be celebrated, as yeah. as, as I look at it. Yeah. When, when I worked on the sets for BCI Eclipse, the company really had the idea of of doing the best possible job and and you know, without tooting my horn too much, I gotta <laughs> say that I really tried to do that. I I did my darndest to make sure that every set had as much as I could possibly fit onto it. Mm-hmm. Whether that meant that you know I put storyboards on there, scripts on there. Uh, there were uh, common 
commentary tracks, there was documentaries, uh, there were deleted scenes if I could get them, there was bloopers if I could get them, there was uh, music and effects tracks, isolated music and effects tracks on some of the things. You know, we did everything possible to kind of make them the coolest projects ever. And that had really never been done in animation. You know, you get Disney uh, projects and they don't have this the the amount of material that we would put on for a one season filmation series. Right. You know? And it really was the difference between how much care we were putting into the projects and how much care bigger companies put into it. Mm-hmm. So what that means now is that, you know, as physical media is losing its hold on younger culture and as more and more kids are experiencing streaming as the way they consume content mm-hmm. um, they're used to things like oh there's a new YouTube two minute behind the scenes segment about this episode or that episode or whatever they're used to that being available for free on YouTube yeah. but if, if they download and stream the movie there are generally no extras on there whatsoever Right. The the only way they get extras now is a physical content on on Blu-ray or 4K or DVD, and the studios are uh, even backing away from any extra content these days. Yeah. <laughs> so unfortunately, what you're seeing is is them saying, "Well, there's no purpose for putting out extra content because people don't care." And I I think you would agree that, no, lots of people care, but uh, getting the pseudo to believe that or getting them to, to think that there's enough caring to generate or, or to, to justify uh, the finances mm-hmm. is, is a big question. So I think that DreamWorks will probably license out their library to... Netflix or somebody else and a lot of these titles will be available as the uh, you know show itself mm-hmm. and in in as close as close to the original airing form as they have it mm-hmm. uh, but <laughs> they will not include any of the extras mm-hmm. okay the, the, the he-man series, has been re-released twice since our since the BCI Eclipse versions, mm-hmm. and one of those releases had a couple of the extras on there. We did sixteen half-hour documentaries. Mm-hmm. That's eight hours of documentary about He-Man <laughs> for those DVD sets, and I think two of those documentaries were used in in the full series set. Wow! <laughs> and then, then the latest time that that. Uh, they were released none of the materials were used so you know when 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 they're just like taking material that's already been done and they already own and saying ah it's not important yeah i don't think we're gonna be seeing those extras anytime soon Mm -hmm. 
Well, back, back in the days when you were doing them, were, was there any shows, I know one off the top of my head, but were there any shows that you were trying to get released and you couldn't find them uh, or you didn't have the rights to? Um, the one I'm thinking of is Uncle Croc's Block. But <laughs> right, right. You know, there's, it's, it's funny. I, I do a column now for Retro Fan Magazine, which is published by Tomorrow's. Yeah. Uh, and and it's called Retro Saturday Mornings, and I I, I delight in talking about all the weird, <laughs> the absolutely bizarre and weird weird series that are out there, and how they came about, and how they developed, and so forth. And and Uncle Croc's Block is on the docket at some point mm-hmm. as as perhaps the weirdest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the problem is that uh, when and this is not just filmation this happened to a lot of companies um, when things were put into syndication or were done for worldwide distribution they would often make changes they would uh, change the theme music or they do a new opening because they might take three or four different versions of a show and kind of lump them all together mm-hmm. uh, so for instance the the Scooby-Doo Dynamite Hour you know was separated into Scooby-Doo episodes and Dynamite episodes well out went the old Dynamite intro that also had Scooby-Doo in it and in came a new Dynamite intro right. and, and new end credits and those um, and and the original intros and so forth weren't kept. Uh, Filmation would re-edit a lot of their stuff into half-hour segments, and then some of those materials were were just kind of discarded or put aside um, without anyone, you know, saying, oh, you know, maybe we should have a complete set of the Archies (laughs) and, uh, and, and have it completely done. Yeah. Um, but nobody understood that there would be a future for the majority of these shows. Yeah. Even the actors and the writers and the animators generally thought that at most the work would be remembered five years past its air date. Mm-hmm. At most. At most. Not 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> and so... So people didn't understand that, well, it's important to keep this stuff. Uh, so many companies, as, as I said there with, the, you know, what Warner did with uh, Dynamite as an example, yes. Filmation did the same thing, but uh, even worse, when L'Oreal got all the materials and then it was eventually sold to Hallmark, Hallmark said, well, let's transfer everything over to digital, which was... <laughs> which was forward thinking on their part but they the materials that they weren't going to distribute they just destroyed oh. and so what happens from that for instance when I did the the Archies and Sabrina and even the Groovy, Groovy Ghoulies sets um, was that we would be looking for things to try and replicate well here here is what the original show would have been yeah, and they they would be missing, right? And 
the the weirdest one was sugar sugar right <laughs> which is the most um the most popular thing that filmation ever did uh even more than he-man sugar sugar uh has ha- had the biggest effect on you know in the world mm-hmm. uh in a way that is you know astonishing because it's it's known in almost every country it there's foreign versions of it it's 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 an immense song mm-hmm. and the original Archie's music videos for it because they didn't have the musical segments in the syndicated version of the Archie's stuff some of them were just were destroyed including Sugar Sugar so when we <laughs> When we worked on the DVD for that, we had to track down the estate of, uh, oh, the late night talk show guy. Um, hmm. My mind is blanking on his name, the guy who, who oh, was before Johnny Carson. Uh, Jack Parr? No, before that. Uh, Steve Allen. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. My mind is just blanking here. Um, uh, hold on. Because I, I know this. I mean, just so we don't have too much of a lull. Uh, the, the Sugar Sugar segment appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. Did you the have Ed the... Sullivan thing? Oh, okay, okay. I, I, I wasn't sure that's who you were trying to think of, but that's, you know. Yeah, yeah my my mind just had a, you know, occasionally. I'm old. I occasionally have... <laughs> oh, you're only two weeks older than me. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm old. You're not. <laughs> In two weeks, I'll feel old. Okay. All right. right I, I get right. it. Okay. Um, so, sorry for the, the brain uh, <laughs> the brain loss there. So, yeah, it was the, um, it was on the Ed Sullivan show, okay. and, and he actually featured two or three songs from the Archies on the Ed Sullivan show. So, we went to the estate of the Ed Sullivan show, and they had transferred all, all his shows uh, to digital as well, and we had to license the 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 music video for Sugar Sugar from the the Ed Sullivan people for the Archie's DVD set. Wow! <laughs> uh, because he owned the sources that we were taking it from, even though what they were taking it from was owned by you know Filmation. It was very bizarre. <laughs> That's weird. So, so anyway, <laughs> the, the, the point behind all that that hideously long story is that the studios, the animation studios, there isn't a single one of them that really thought that their work. The, uh, let me say, in television animation, yeah. there isn't a single one of them that really thought that their work was going to stand the test of time. Right. Walt Disney Animation understood it, yeah, and to. To an extent, Warner Brothers feature animation um, understood it. Yeah. And any anything that was theatrical, pretty much the people understood that it would have a history, mainly because Disney kept re-releasing and re-releasing, and everybody understood, oh, we can re-release these years from now. Mm. Nobody thought that Captain Caveman or Bigfoot and Wild Boy or the Archies or whatever would be talked about or archived uh, 40 years later or 50 years later. Right. 
so so the material just wasn't kept and one of the things that I think you do, Mark, and one of the things that I do, <laughs> and, and a, few, a very few other people, is that we archive and bring as much attention possible to these older animated projects to, to give them their proper place in history. Right. And, and, the, and then get frustrated when you can't find copies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's really difficult, you know. And and what's funny is 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 a funny funny sad mm-hmm. is that as much as when we work on these properties and these projects, everyone thinks that that we've with the ends that we've got, we're going to have an easy time putting these things together and you know that that thing i just told you about sugar sugar that's a that's a pretty clear example of (laughs) of how it's not quite so easy yeah because if if the ed sullivan show did not have that clip then the sugar sugar music video would be lost for all time right (laughs) (laughs) i I was this is totally a different aside but it's similar to what we're talking about i was reading about doctor who and how that there's like 97 episodes that are still missing and uh they found a clip of the transformation of the original doctor who to the second doctor who and it just happened to be on a british children's show called blue peter (laughs) Um, and so they had to license like you did that clip back to use it on the dvd because it's it's the only place they had it otherwise it was wiped you know and it's like it's amazing you know it's like you'd think somebody would save that you'd think somebody would save sugar sugar it's like the biggest hit of the archies you know it's like of all things to throw away you know it's like oh let's just throw away the main thing that archies are known for (laughs) right right (laughs) and and now, of course, we live in a you know the the era where everyone thinks that the stuff is going to be kept around digitally. Right. And yet, I'll tell you that stuff disappears on the internet all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, it used to be like if you uh, if you're looking for collectibles and you wanted to find something and you were you wanted to find out where it had been sold on eBay, you know, eBay had had. 12 years of stuff and you could go back through and search and now if it's not within the last three months that's gone yeah and you know there's there's very little permanence until you put it down on paper right there's very little permanence Mm -hmm. and when you put something down on paper in a book that is you know unless unless we're faced with with fire uh, or flooding, um, that that book has a permanence that digital media doesn't have, that film media doesn't have, that the memory, you know, mind media, physical media doesn't have. Books have a permanence, yeah. and so it's one of the reasons that that the books that uh, that you work on, that I work on, that other people work on, and even the magazines that we write for. It's one of the reasons those are so important that people support those and keep those going because that's how history is going to stay archived. Right. 
And it is funny, and even I'm guilty of this myself, you know, is we all thought, oh, you know, this stuff isn't that old. Uh, it's just kept in a vault somewhere. It's just, you know, and they kept good records of things and stuff like that. And it's like you find out that they kept worse records of these shows than, say, silent movies. <laughs> things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, uh, when I, when I worked on the book, creating the filmation generation, uh, with Lou Scheimer mm -hmm. and it's that book is, which is published by tomorrow's a couple years ago. Although that book is Lou's autobiography, um, that I wrote with him. It's also really a history of Saturday morning television, the development of Saturday morning television from the 1960s through the, the mid eighties. Mm -hmm. And it talks about not just filmation, but all the studios and how and why uh, decisions were made by the networks, how and why decisions were made by advertisers. Um, you know, why shows had such weird run times and, and <laughs> episode orders and how, how they made decisions, uh, you know, dealing with the Action for Children's Television, which was the censorship group that was constantly fighting uh, for, you know, in the cartoon realm. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, uh, so the when I was working on that book with Lou for about five years, um, I, I had access to everything that he had kept. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I I'm certain that there was a lot more that was sent over to to France when L'Oreal bought Filmation. Mm -hmm. But I also know from Daryl McNeil, who was a past uh, Hanna Barbera artist and who loved this type of stuff like we do, mm -hmm. uh, and had kept everything that that he ever worked on and. Uh, both for Filmation and Hanna-Barbera uh, until it all it got lost uh, when he lost one of his storage units hmm. um, and then it all went away uh, but all, all the paperwork that Lou had I now have copies of and you know even things that you would think would be reasonably simple like air dates yeah. um, are not Right, because what people take as air dates for shows now is well, it debuted on this date, so clearly it debuted with the first episode, and then it, you know, it aired to this date. So clearly, all thirteen episodes of season one, you know, aired thirteen weeks in a row. <laughs> and those of us who lived that period know that 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 that, that isn't true. Right. But anybody who sits down and goes through, like, say, TV Guide will see that that isn't true because what immediately happened is you would have the the September debuts of the shows and they'd get about four episodes in and then uh, football would start <laughs> and football would interrupt two or three of the channels and the other channels would say, well, you know, screw this football everyone's going to be watching football so we'll put something else on and so then for three or four weeks there wouldn't be any cartoons and then they 
put on a few more weeks of it, and then it would be the holidays, <laughs> and then, and you know, and then, then on top of that, uh, studios never, no studio ever in the history of, of television animation, no studio ever delivered stuff in a timely fashion. Right. There, there are literally examples from every single studio out there where they would deliver things hours before they were going to air nationally. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, somebody would be driving across town and if they had gotten in a car accident, that show would not have aired that day. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, so so when people look at these these episode guides, they're usually based on the production order or the production numbers yeah. of the episodes. So it'll be production 101, 102, 103, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> and so they think, well, they were produced in that order. Of course, they were aired in that order. But that isn't the case. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> they, 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 they were almost never aired in order unless it was a... Um, multi-part show like if it was part one through three then they would air part one through three in order but um other than that their the production numbers had very little to do with how they were aired they were aired based on when they were turned into the network mm -hmm. and and almost no show ever had two episodes turned in ahead of time they were almost always turned in within the week that they were airing mm -hmm. part of the reason from that wasn't just because they were late all the time part of the reason for that was to fight the censors mm. <laughs> because if the studio got the episode too early they would sit there and look at it and they would find some reason to say well you need to change this well you need to change this well you need to change this <laughs> or the censor censor people would would say that the Censors were called standards and practices. And the standards and practices people would say, well, we object to... Uh, I'm, I'm not picking on Captain Caveman here. It's, just, it's the name that comes to mind. We object to Captain Caveman, you know, uh, slapping the dashboard of his, of his car because that teaches kids to slap. So you need to take that out. So they would then need to go in and... And, you know, cut to a shot outside the car where we don't see him slap it and they need to change the sound effects track and they need, you know, add in three more seconds of music or whatever. And so they just learned that if they turned it in with only a day or two at most in advance, mm -hmm. then they didn't have to deal with the censors and they didn't have to deal with changes from the network. So it became derogare for studios to just turn their stuff in as late as possible and you know for that then hopefully it got on air um you know the way it was they sort of intended it right i have a question about uh things like the archies and even superman and uh the earlier stuff that filmation did uh because i'm wondering if they had the same issues that uh total television had with underdog and stuff like that um did they mix and match segments on earlier filmation shows to make it even more complicated as far as air dates go no okay <laughs> no that was that was something that was generally done 
when it went into syndication. Oh, okay. The uh, the 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 Superman Superman and Superboy episodes were, you know, once they got the scripts written, uh, they were then they would decide how they would go. That's when they would mix and match before it went into production. Okay. Once it was into production, it was pretty much locked, and that became episode one was these three segments. Okay. They they would almost never i won't say never because there there's there's a couple times where they may have done that um and especially like with with music shows that had music on them they would they would mix and match that a little more yeah um but they would almost never change a show around once it went into production in terms of what was going to be in there okay now part of the reason they did it with music is say they had 16 episodes of the Archies that season but they only had 13 songs mm-hmm. then they would say okay well we need to we have two songs per episode um, and we have that means that we have you know six and a half episodes of songs but we have 18 episodes to put it in so we either need more songs or we repeat them Mm-hmm. But we aren't going to repeat the the same two songs per episode, so they would mix and match from that, or they or they might pull from a previous season. Mm. Now, when you did those Archie sets, uh, were those faithful to what aired, or did you have to kind of guess at it, kind of like because of that reason for the music? Segments? As close as closely as possible, they were faithful to what aired. Okay, uh, we didn't have. We didn't have legit, uh, as-aired, first-airing versions of any of the shows to go with, Hmm. but we did have scripts for some of them, Mm -hmm. and we had some of the footage that was related to, um, like, transition footage and things like that, so we, we edited those into... As close as possible, we believe these are correct. Mm. Um, and that was on the Archies, the two seasons of the Archies that I did. Yeah. The, the season of Sabrina that they put out, they just put they put that out without my input. Oh. And they those they just took the, um, the syndicated versions and just put them out as was. Mm. So the syndicated version of Sabrina. They they all had one opening and closing. They didn't they didn't have the separate or different versions of the Sabrina opening that they did for each season. Um, and they and they really did kind of mix and match them. Mm. So those those ones have nothing whatsoever to do with the reality of how it was aired. Mm-hmm. But the first the first two Archie sets, like we re, I really tried to make sure that they were. Uh, as correct as possible. Mm-hmm. And now you talked about the music segment's gone missing. Did any of the actual episodes go missing, or did you find everything? For for what? For the Archies? For Archies, yeah. Yeah, we found everything as far as I know. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, there is stuff that's that's missing. For instance, uh, when I was when I was working on the filmation library. 
there there were shows that they didn't send us because we didn't have the rights to it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the status of Uncle Croc's Block is <laughs> in as it exists in the current uh, Universal DreamWorks catalog. They they may have all of them perfectly. Oh. They may have they may have none of them. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I thought there just uh, might have been a choice saying, well, this is a flop originally, according to your book, and uh, yeah. so why put it out on video? And I thought that might have been the thinking, but I don't know. <laughs> no, no. What happened was they took all the anime... Because it was a flop, they never syndicated Uncle Croc's block, and they took the animated segments and syndicated them as their own thing. Right. So the so Mush, which was an animated segment that parodied MASH, mm-hmm. Mush was its own show, and Freddy Cat was its own show. And all these things that were uh, that were segments of Uncle Croc's Block became their own shows. So now we were going to release all of those on their own, mm-hmm. but... Uh, and I kept asking, hey, did, do you have Uncle Croc stuff? And they kept saying no. So it's either been destroyed or they just don't want to put it out there. <laughs> Darn. Now, now, the same thing goes specifically with Filmation. Everyone asks me about, what about the Super 7 episodes? Yeah. Uh, that, that being Web Woman, uh, Super Stretch and Micro Woman, mm-hmm. uh, Manta and Moray. And because we did release the Freedom Force, which was one of the Super 7 segments. Right. And people have thought that, well, there was this lawsuit against Super Stretch and Micro Woman, Manta and Moray, and and Web Woman, and DC won, and it put put, uh, Filmation out of business and blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. That's all (laughs) BS. There, There was a lawsuit, and... The, and I'm going to be doing an article about this in a future retro fan. Cool. <laughs> um, really, really getting down to it. If you want to read the short version, it'll be in, it's in my book. And basically, DC Comics was mad at in a, at at Filmation because they had licensed Plastic Man mm-hmm. to Filmation to sell as a series which Filmation did everything they could to sell as a series. And at that point, for whatever reason, none of the networks wanted to do Plastic Man. (laughs) So Filmation says, we can't sell it as its own series. And so the next season, they had this this anthology show they were doing that was going to have a variety of superheroes in it and because none of them were licensed none of the the anthology segments were going to be licensed Tarzan was licensed and Batman was licensed and uh, Lone Ranger and Zorro were licensed but none of the anthology segments were licensed so they were all going to be created by Filmation. So they created these superheroes, one of which, Super Stretch, did Stretch. He was a black uh, African-American character, mm-hmm. a black man married to a black woman. So they were married, number one. Uh, both of them had powers. 
It had nothing to do with Plastic Man except that it was a character that could stretch. Right. And they had just told the year prior, they had just told DC that they couldn't sell their series based on a stretching superhero. So here they were <laughs> releasing a stretching superhero series. Now what DC didn't get and what eventually came out in the you know in the lawsuit was that the sale of Superstretch and Microwoman had nothing whatsoever to do with Superstretch and Microwoman. It had to deal do with an anthology series that was sold, and that was one of the segments of it. Mm-hmm. It it could have been it could have been about a stretching dog. It could have been about an invisible dog. It could have been about a blender that talked. It didn't matter to the <laughs> network because they weren't buying it for the anthology segments. They were buying it for Tarzan, Batman, Lone Ranger, Zorro. Right. So they didn't care what the anthology segments were. Yeah. So it hadn't sold on the fact that it was Plastic Man-like. Mm-hmm. It sold on the basis of it was an anthology series. Yeah. So DC, so DC sues them saying, well, you ripped off Plastic Man for this. And you didn't sell our our thing, which was a breach of contract. Mm. And then, on top of that, you ripped off Aquaman and Mira for Manta and Moray. <laughs> and they left Web Woman completely out of it. Well, wasn't Web Woman, didn't Marvel get mad about that because of Spider Woman, or was that a different thing? That's, see, that's what everybody says. Well, I'll get into that here in a Okay, second. okay. <laughs> So, so there was there was the big the big deal about the, the 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 DC lawsuit, which went on on for a while. Filmation pulled those segments from the uh, from airing mm-hmm. because of the lawsuit, and then and and DC puts on its its you know legal defense. The jury uh, decided against Filmation and gave mm. this enormous fine about uh, about these properties, saying, yes, you clearly ripped off DC Comics and you ripped off Plastic Man, Aquaman, and Mira. Mm. Clearly, clearly, clearly. The judge then came back and said, no, the jury is idiots um, you DC Comics clearly has not met the burden of proof on here and and you know if they're going after this then they also have to go after Mr. Fantastic and they have to go after right. every single character that stretches and if they're going after characters that swim in the water then they have to go after Jaws and they have to go you know? <laughs> I mean he was basically saying no we are not finding that DC Comics had, um, at, or that the Filmation had ripped off DC Comics. Right. So he threw out, I believe that there were seven counts that they were guilty, that Filmation was found guilty on. <laughs> he, threw out, he threw out all but two of them, and those two had to deal with the Plastic Man deal, not anything to do with. Super Search and Micro Woman, but the Plastic Man part of it. Right. And so, basically, he, he held them in. And so this, this you know, multi-hundreds of thousands of dollars that Filmation would have had to pay 
to to DC got uh, taken down to I don't know it was like two thousand or or, <laughs> or six thousand or something. I mean it was it was like knockdown to to chump change, and then DC didn't get their lawyer fees back either. Ooh. <laughs> so so I mean in all it was it was a huge wash and a huge failure and so forth. But what it did do it changed American law. Um, so any lawyer knows about the DC uh, filmation case, or mo- most lawyers know about it, because it changed copyright law, and it changed whether that that case is now used when people discuss whether or not something is derivative, uh, whether it is whether it is a ripoff or whether it's derivative of, meaning was it derived from, mm-hmm. not. Is it similar to, but is it derived from? And everyone thinks that Filmation lost the case <laughs> when, in fact, it changed the law in ways that that uh, helped Filmation. <laughs> um, and after the lawsuit, they later put the the show back on the air, and those characters they put those segments back on the air. <laughs> So they were aired again, but they were kind of tainted. And so when they did, plus they all had weird, like, you know, one had four episodes, another one had nine. There was, there was like this weird, you know, thing with them. So when they went to do syndication, they just left them out of the syndication package. But oh. now we aren't going to syndicate these. And so what's happened now is, we don't know what's happened to those either. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, you know, they they may be a part of what DreamWorks has, or they may have just been destroyed, uh, or we, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the webwoman thing is an interesting case, because <laughs> if, if one were to say that they had ripped off DC Comics, webwoman was actually the version that was closest because Webwoman was essentially a Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very, very close to being a Green, green Lantern. Mm-hmm. And um, had nothing whatsoever to do with spiders, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really had nothing whatsoever to do with Spider Woman. So uh, there is apparently some kind of Marvel versus Filmation legal thing mm-hmm. that happened regarding Web Woman and Spider Woman. Mm-hmm. The only reason that I know that it is true is because one of our compatriots um, in in animation history supposedly testified at the hearing. At least he lists it on his CV about, uh, you know, cases in which he's testified as a a star witness. Mm -hmm. That is the only proof I've been able to find that that case actually existed. I can't find any kind of proof in in any legal documents. I can't find any... uh, When I spoke to Lou's you know, long-term lawyer about it. He didn't remember it. Lou didn't remember it. Okay. Nobody remembers this Mar- so-called, you know, famous Marvel case. Yeah. Except for it's part of like the fan 
the fan mindset that, yeah. oh, this happened. Yeah. Um, and so as I'm, as I'm researching for this other article, I'm going to be talking with our compatriot that supposedly <laughs> spoke at this thing yeah. to try and find out what was that? Was yeah. it a, was it a, uh, full trial? Because it clearly didn't, if it's not in the legal record books, then it didn't go to a full trial. Right. So was it a a hearing? Was it a, you know, you see on TV when they go into like a boardroom and they take depositions and so forth. Was it that? Mm. And then they decided, well, the, this can't, you know, clearly we're not going to win. Did they decide to drop it all once DC got spanked and you know all all the all the finances went away what (laughs) was it that that made this not a huge case right well one thing one thing that is definite is around that same time regardless if it went to trial or not uh which i don't have any proof either but uh the uh marvel did put out a spider woman comic book series and it was quickly rushed and made into a dip hattie freeling tv series on saturday mornings too so (laughs) absolutely i mean that was something that was uh very clearly in response to to web woman and in fact if i remember right and i i think i talked about this in the book um the dates on everything were were so close that it, it you know it was kind of a well which came first type of type right. of affair because the um the Super 7 debuted in 78. Mm-hmm. Web Woman, or I'm sorry, Spider Woman debuted in 1977, but the Super 7 was already well into production at the point that Spider Woman debuted. Mm-hmm. So so to say that Web Woman was a, uh, was derivative of Spider Woman mm-hmm. is, is very odd because Spider Woman didn't there, there would have literally had to be somebody at Marvel's New York office who called up filmation and said, "Hey, I have a great idea for you to steal that somebody just started working on today." <laughs> right. Know? Well, it's I think the, the, the timing of it was so was so specific that that there's not really a case that one was derivative of the other right but i'm thinking also that marvel was like kind of staking their claim like we better get these characters out because in short order they also did she hulk and crazy magazine that did a teen hulk (laughs) and uh, you know uh just wanted to make sure they got all their uh women and uh, uh counterpart versions of all their male superheroes in check or whatever i don't know it just seems like that was and even dc did that didn't they have like a superwoman or something like that or at least try to get yeah. the copyrights on these yes. things too so <laughs> yep yep and and stanley even talked about the fact that they were afraid that dc would do something he didn't say anything about filmation right uh and there there had been a lawsuit when when they put out wonder man and uh dc was like no you can't do wonder man and then they did power girl and Marvel had done Power Man and you know all this stuff 
it's it's very convoluted at the time, <laughs> and the companies are batting stuff back and forth. So you know, so yeah, Spider Woman had to become, and She Hulk had to become, <laughs> and uh, so forth. But uh, filmation wasn't really a part of those decisions. Right. As much as people, as as much as the popular myth. Yeah. says that that's what it was. It wasn't part of the decisions. Yeah, and I didn't find anything in my research for my Patty Freeling book either. Uh, so, <laughs> But it is kind of funny that uh, from Fantastic Four, they greenlit uh, Spider-Woman before they greenlit Spider-Man. <laughs> and it, right. it might vaguely have had something to do with the Web Woman super stretch thing. Or maybe not, but it, it seems like impeccable timing of it all. So that's... Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, now, since we're talking about Web Woman and Spider Woman and all that, I do want to point out there's one that, that's also in the, the public mind that I I constantly try and get pe- out of people's heads, and that is about that's about Isis. Oh yeah, Isis Isis is not a DC Comics character. Isis was created completely and solely by filmation to be a companion piece to the Shazam TV show. Mm-hmm. That's why they did the Shazam Isis Hour, was to team the two of them up. And yes, there are similarities, and yes, there are crossovers, and yes, they shared a uh, opening credit sequence. Mm-hmm. But Isis is not owned in any fashion by DC Comics. And people are like, but they published a comic. <laughs> if you look at, you look at the, the, you know, the indicia inside the comic, you will see that it says that ISIS is owned and licensed from Filmation. And that's still the case. That's and it's just, still the case. Okay, I just when, want to make that clear. <laughs> when, when we, when we did the the ISIS DVD set, it was a really interesting thing because there are episodes, crossover episodes where Shazam appeared Captain Marvel appeared on ISIS mm-hmm. and where ISIS appeared in episodes of Shazam Right. and we went through all this legal stuff with Warner Brothers where we had to look into um, <laughs> who owned the right, could we release those could they release them, and, and or could we both release both? Mm-hmm. And so what ended up happening, because part of the contract says that if it was a Shazam episode, even though it had ISIS in it, it could be released. Mm-hmm. And if it's an ISIS episode, even though it had Shazam in it, it could be released by the, by the people who own Shazam. Mm-hmm. So we released our episodes, and they released their episodes, and all is fine in the world. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that Warner allowed us to do, and if fans don't have the original ISIS DVD set, they won't ever see this, uh, unless it's been put up on YouTube. But uh, Warner and DC allowed us to put some of the interstitial materials that had both the, from the Shazam Isis Hour, the opening credits and so forth, mm-hmm. that had both Shazam and Isis in there. They allowed us to put those onto the DVD set, but they were Easter eggs, so they were hidden. Yeah, you had, 
get to find your way to them by you know using your remote and clicking on this and then moving to that clicking on this and you know so forth um so anyhow so the uh so isis was owned by dc or was owned by filmation isis by the way is also the first people don't generally don't think about this she was the first live action superheroine to have her own tv show it predated bionic woman and wonder woman by a week Woo. <laughs> so she, i was gonna say wasn't actually, it the same year but then okay a week all right <laughs> yeah she's actually the first yeah um so beyond that uh people are like well what about isis showing up on smallville and what about isis showing up in dc's 52 and what about isis showing up on legends of tomorrow and so forth yeah so that is <laughs> that's another ISIS. article for you <laughs> yeah that is that is isis based on the egyptian goddess isis mm-hmm. who happens to sometimes wear a costume that looks exactly like the filmation costume <laughs> who happens to use an amulet that looks exactly like the filmation amulet and who may or may not actually use the name Isis because of course in Legends of Tomorrow I don't think she's ever used the name Isis right um but uh supposedly in the Black Adam movie they are going to use the name Isis hmm. but but the reason that DC could get away with that is not because they owed Filmation anything or because they owned the character or anything else like that. It's because there was no company who was who was willing to go after DC Comics and Warner Brothers for using a character that was clearly derivative of ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> now... Is there any truth to this? This is what I originally thought when ISIS came on the air. Um, since uh, Shazam was Captain Marvel and was a Fawcett character, uh, and Fawcett had Ibis, the Invincible, who was an Egyptian-type character, <laughs> I thought that they just made a female version of him, uh, no. but it's not anything to do with that at all. No, not okay. at all. Okay. It, it, it purely related to they wanted to a female counterpart to Captain Marvel. Okay. And there was an element of they wanted it to have something to do with archaeology and gods because Captain Marvel got his power from the gods. Got it. Okay. <laughs> and, and they wanted they wanted it to have something to do with archaeology. And uh, actually, I wrote a big article in uh, Back Issue magazine uh, about the the. The, the origins of ISIS mm-hmm. and it had more information actually than my book has uh, because I interviewed some of the, uh, the the guy who actually created the show and so forth. It was actually originally going to be basically the X-Files. Mm. Uh, they were they were gonna, it was her and, and her male friend who eventually became her, her co-teacher um, and you know some kids going around investigating stuff and uh, so it was more of like an X-Files Scooby-Doo type thing <laughs> uh, and then they eventually decided to put it in a classroom setting and changed her to a uh, uh, to a school teacher mm-hmm. so um, yeah that was but that was always meant to be similar to but different from Shazam Not it had nothing to do with with any uh, any other character 
Okay. All right. <laughs> um, this just came to my mind just out of left field. I meant to ask it earlier, so we're going back to the Archies for a second. Uh, uh-huh. You got all the Archie series out for the most part, uh, but my favorite was always the U.S. of Archie. <laughs> Why was that one excluded? Was that one missing, or you didn't yeah, have the actually, rights to it? Actually, unfortunately, we didn't get to put out very many of the Archies. They only did the two sets I worked on, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and they stopped. Our next one, I think, would have been the U.S. of Archie. Okay. Um, and then, uh, what would it have been? Because we did... No, we didn't do Archie's TV's fun, TV Funnies. Right, that's true. You missed that one, too. <laughs> um, but I always figured it was because of a rights issue on that, but maybe not. I don't know. No, yeah. no, no. That, that was one where they had the rights, as long as as long as long they're representing what it originally was. They ah, had the right. Got it. Okay. Um, but the, uh, the U.S. of Archie and Archie's TV Funnies were basically... Um, they, the the first two Archie sets didn't sell well enough. What? And they oh, thought okay. they they, <laughs> they thought that Sabrina would sell better because of the, uh, the Melissa Joan Hart TV show. Right. But the Melissa Joan Hart TV show was kind of in its waning days and was getting ready to go off the air. But then they did an animated version. And they thought, well, maybe the animated version will do well. And that'll support. So they, so that's why they put out a Sabrina set. Mm-hmm. Um, but it isn't even everything. And then the Archie, the second Archie set, didn't sell well enough, and so they just killed the whole line. Oh. I had, I, I had it all worked out. We were going to, we were going to uh, release everything. Okay. Um, <laughs> but. Um, but unfortunately, not to be. Because mm. as a fan, you know, I hate to say this, I had to go to the bootleg uh, market to get that series, which I do have it. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah. there are there are a number of their series that are only available through through the bootleg market and the pirating market. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm still working. I'm actually working with. Uh, right now to try and clear the rights to um, one filmation series that hasn't been released yet and I'm working with them and, and it's a it's a legal tangle and a legal nightmare and we're we're trying our best to get that series out mm-hmm. um, you know one of the nice things about having worked on these and having written the the creating the filmation generation book mm-hmm. is that now if a company wants to do any of this material and they care at all about um, its legacy they will come to me for 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 help that's good <laughs> and, um, you know and I I'm not implying anything about Warner Brothers with because I didn't help them on either Tarzan or Shazam yeah well I did I did help them some on Shazam but but a lot of the stuff I offered them, they, they were just like, nah, we don't want to do that. <laughs> um, but Tarzan, I didn't help them at all, and I could have. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a... Um, it's not that they didn't respect it, it's just that they didn't want to spend the extra money on it. They yeah. already knew that it was going to be a, a low seller. Yeah. So why, why spend extra money on something that's already going to not sell well? when they they didn't figure that it would make a difference in their 
Mm-hmm. Now, is the one you're working on, I mean, if you can't say the title, you can't say the title. But uh, Fantastic Voyage came out uh, like in Region 2 DVD, which I did buy because I wanted it. Uh, yeah. Any chance for that or Journey to the Center of the Earth coming out in the U.S. edition? I, I truly think that other than the one I'm working on, we won't see any of them come out on physical media bah. again. <laughs> I think that it's all going to be digital media now. Uh. Uh, I know, I know. Trust me, I feel your pain on yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I mean, they have, uh, Warner has, they, they uh, digitally um, redid Shazam, yeah. and, they, and they have uh, HD upgraded Aquaman, the complete Aquaman, and... Um, they have put the Superboy, they've put the Superman and Superboy cartoons together correctly on, and those are all in the DC app, or the uh, mm. the, the DC Universe app. Mm. Okay, I was wondering where's that because Superboy was so, another bootleg one I had to go, and I'm like, I hope they do a legit one, but <laughs> right, right, right. And, and the frustrating thing about that is they've already released the two Superman DVDs, right. And they, they aren't planning on releasing Superboy, and so the only way you can get uh, a the Superboy show at all, and b the Superboy and Superman shows in their actual original form, is digitally on the on the uh, DC Universe platform. Wow. Now Shazam, I understand, has been released or is about to be released on Blu-ray. It's out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that is the HD version. Yeah. And it looks. Gorgeous. Yeah, it's on uh, the Warner Archive, so you have to order it through the mail, as it were. But you know, at least yeah, it's out, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it looks gorgeous. And and so I'm like, well, why are they not putting out the Aquaman HD version? Right. And they might, you know, when Aquaman two comes out, maybe they'll do it then. Yeah. But uh, you know, they still have the animated Shazam from Filmation that they've never released at all. Right. And, um, you know, and I, I'm like, well, why don't they release that? <laughs> well, the, the good Tarzan, news is Warner Archives is starting to put out a lot more animation than they were. And they put out, yeah. like, uh, uh, Johnny Quest and Jetsons on Blu-ray. Uh, they put, they're they putting out a Tex Avery set, which has been long <laughs> wanted by everybody. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Things like that. So they're finally kind of listening to the fans, or these are selling well enough that it's worth them to do it. I guess that's you know one of the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they and they and they really do look great. It's funny because uh, you know Lou didn't Lou didn't live long enough to see his work on Blu-ray, but some of the actors have. And I'm good friends with Michael Gray and John Davy, and you know we were looking at the the Shazam HD versions uh, downloaded from the, the DC DC Universe site and we were looking at them and and they, you know our, our consensus was they literally never looked this good <laughs> they, they didn't look this good when they originally aired <laughs> and and they never looked this good in reruns and they've never looked this good anywhere until now Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of weird to see the stuff that you're you're used to just looking grainy 
and and suddenly it's crisp and clean and beautiful and you're like wait a minute that's <laughs> not i've never seen it that way <laughs> well maybe i'll have to invest in that one I'll, i haven't gotten the blu-ray yet but i know it's there so <laughs> yeah, yeah well you know you know what's amazing about it is that uh what i found kind of funny was that you can actually tell all the elders apart uh in hd <laughs> You know, when when Billy Batson is talking to the elders, you can now tell who's who. Whereas in previous versions, even the the, the DVDs, you know, they would do that lens flare and the corona around them, and they had right. Vaseline on, they had Vaseline on the lens and so forth, and they were all kind of blurry and yeah. lens flare. <laughs> and and now in HD, you can actually be like oh there's hermes and there's there's mercury or Mer not hermes there's mercury uh there's solomon <laughs> hercules atlas zeus achilles mercury i mean there you can tell they're who they are they don't just look like like blurry faces with a with a lens flare on them wow <laughs> well <laughs> definitely a reason to purchase so i'm going to probably look into this so i yeah. didn't even think about that because i was you know it's the shazam tv show is never my favorite i hate to say i actually like oh. the i like the animated cartoon a lot better so okay well the animated cartoon you know if you're if you're a Fawcett fan uh, the animated cartoon is brilliant yeah. i mean it, yeah. it, it 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 has so many so many elements from the original Fawcett show uh, comics that it's that it's amazing you know filmation gets a lot of crap from people and and certain animation historians in general really love to dump on filmation but one of the things that that you know especially those who read my book yeah there are some who who just won't even read my book but those who read my book one of the things people came to realize was that number one filmation was responsible for a huge amount of innovations when it came to to Saturday morning television. Uh, it, introducing comic book superheroes, introducing rock bands uh, <laughs> and rock music to um, to Saturday morning. Uh, they were the first company to feature an African-American character mm -hmm. that was in the Hardy Boys. Mm -hmm. Um they were the first company to feature an entire cartoon of African-American characters with Fat Albert and the Cosby kids. Mm -hmm. They were, uh, I believe, the first company to license an actual person. Uh, that would be, will the real Jerry Lewis please sit down? <laughs> um, they were... television superheroine in a weekly show they were uh generally thought of as responsible for introducing the morals at the end of the episodes mm -hmm. um which is now you know kind of a joke and a staple of a lot of shows <laughs> were, uh, were, were they the first to do what they did with he-man and eventually with fat albert and She-Ra and everything of having the daily afternoon strip versus Saturday morning only. Yes, okay. yeah, they were okay. the first. They were the first all-new syndicated show. That that rocked. That was such an 
an important innovation to for the animated world. People have no idea exactly how huge, how <laughs> astonishingly enormous that was for the animated field. Uh, they were the last company, and this is where I was getting to, they were the last company to animate everything they did in America. When everyone else had sent their work overseas, <laughs> they went to, they were still doing it in America. And what happened was the networks were wouldn't buy shows from them, partially because uh, they were still animating in America and their stuff was more expensive. Uh-huh. And so Lou had to find a way to, to keep the company alive and to keep producing animated material. He had to find a way, and they were owned by the company that owned uh, a, the, the biggest cable uh, network. Uh, or uh, cable uh, stations around the country. Mm-hmm. And so Lou came up with the idea of creating a, a show that would be new content Monday through Friday, 65 new episodes per year, which could then be rerun four times during the year, mm-hmm. or five times during the year. And it would mean that kids could come home from school and see a cartoon show not uh, have to wait till Saturday morning right <laughs> a brand new cartoon show just for them on on weekdays after school right and, and he man the masters of the universe was the first show to do that and it was such an immense hit that it led to everybody else announcing their own shows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so you would not have Transformers. You would not have G.I. Joe. You would not have Thundercats. You would not have Strawberry Shortcake. You would, you know, all the DuckTales, all the Disney ones. <laughs> all the Disney ones. All of that came from Lou breaking the stranglehold of the networks. They said, we aren't going to buy from you. Lou said, fine, I'll find another way to get the cartoons to kids. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he did it, and it was such a huge hit that suddenly the animation field was opened up to syndication. Right. And, um, and all these shows that we love today um, and we think of as being, you know, Classics of the of the animation world. All of them came because Lou decided to do He Man. Wow! <laughs> and now people they look at some of the shows that I talk about in books and they go, "Really? They only did thirteen episodes of that? They only did seventeen episodes of that?" You know? And it's yeah, like, I mean, yeah, it's like that's the way they used to do it. For some reason, that's it. You know? Now it's, it's sixty five is like minimum of things. You know? It's right, like, <laughs> right. I mean, did, wasn't Jetsons like sixteen or eighteen episodes? Oh, uh, twenty four, but it was prime time. So yeah, and then they repeated them forever for twenty years, and then they made some new right. ones in the eighties. But yeah, it's like right, right. <laughs> You know, and uh, you just accepted it. You said, okay, I guess this is all there's going to be. You know, <laughs> it's like... Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, I, you know, I don't... For all the animation historians that complain about filmation, what they're complaining about is, is 
reuse of animation <laughs> and uh, stock stock footage, basically. Um, and they actually complain a lot about the morals, which I think the morals were were very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, it helped filmation stay out of the hot seat when Action for Children's Television was running rampant through the industry and and you know basically murdering the animation industry um filmation was able to because they were putting these morals on because they had educational uh staff people who who made sure that every episode had some kind of educational component because of that they basically were able to stay out of the out of the 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 fire that was headed towards animation in general (laughs) um but but let's talk about the stock animation for a moment because uh one of the funny things that that people people like give a pass to (laughs) hanna-barbera and hanna-barbera if you look at especially their their uh their comedy stuff Mm -hmm. which is which is the majority of hanna-barbera um, you look at their comedy stuff, and everybody's got freaking bow ties on. Right. Why do they have bow ties on? So they don't have to animate their bodies. Right. They can just animate the heads. And you watch a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, and and you're like, wait a minute. They've just reused, you know, like 90% of every cartoon is, is a reuse. Right. And they were doing stock constantly right constantly all over the place <laughs> people don't go well Hanna Barbera is a stock company they reused animation but they they just love to dog on filmation about yeah. it um and <laughs> and you know they they forget that the logistics of the animation field at the time were that Hanna-Barbera was sending work overseas. They were not employing American animators. And they were still doing reused animation. Lou was employing American animators and doing his darndest to make sure to keep the animation field alive um, at a time when other companies were were sending it all overseas. Right. And sure, he did reuse animation and he did stock and everything else like that but it was all drawn by real animators in america right wasn't the only exception zorro and he kind of hated himself for that (laughs) basically yeah yeah Yeah. zorro zorro was the only one that they ever sent overseas until like right towards the end um and zorro was that was specifically because they had so much stuff to 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 do that um, they couldn't uh, they, they, they just they couldn't get it all done right. and uh, they had they had more shows on the air at that point that they were having to animate than they could do than they could complete mm-hmm. so they they sent the work over to uh, overseas and it was the only time they did it, and Lou hated it. Mm. <laughs> and that was right. That was right towards the end, right about the time that they said, "Okay, we're, we're the the network said we're done with you." Right. And, uh, and that's when he started doing He Man in, in syndication. Right. And I'll tell you, 
that you know you, you can't you can't talk to a single animator over the age of forty, basically, who didn't work on He Man or Fat Albert or <laughs> She Ghostbusters or Brave Star, and you know why? Because they employed every freaking animator in <laughs> at that point. Wow, <laughs> they were they they were doing so much employment of of animators that almost everybody that's still in the field now started out on one of those shows yeah i know quite a few of them and yeah it's like i know a few like mike kazala i think he was there the last day filmation was open and you know things like that so they were all there (laughs) and and you know uh i brought up brave star there let me say that that even right up to the end brave star Lou was still pushing the pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brave Star was the first TV series to feature a lead character that was Native American, mm-hmm. and and Lou was constantly pushing to um, to 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 feature diversity and to have shows that he could be proud of showing to a kid, right, and. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, the the legacy. The legacy of filmation is is really uh, amazing. And and I don't. You know, it's funny. Uh, uh, I dedicated the animation on DVD book not to Lou because <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know Lou at that time. It was to it was to Hanna Barbera for Ooh. doing Super Friends. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and Super Friends had a had a far bigger direct impact on my life than the filmation stuff did growing up yeah and and yet i can't remember a time well i can't remember a time as a kid that super friends wasn't on the air Mm -hmm. and i can't remember a time that filmation wasn't you know wasn't a part of it as a kid (laughs) because those were those were the golden years for me that was the years i was watching television before i went off to college right um (laughs) You know, Super Friends was around for 13 seasons, so it was on a long time. Yep. <laughs> and I watched it uh, all, too. You know, so. Right, right, right. <laughs> By the time it finished, I was done with college. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So it, was, uh, it was from the age of five up through the age of 18. Right. Um, so, you know, so I'm not saying that other companies didn't have their purpose or their place in, in and you know, as I as I write these articles for Retrofan, um again, that's a magazine for tomorrow's, it's a bi monthly magazine. Um, as I'm writing my retro Saturday morning columns for them, I'm I'm focusing on you know, fun things from lots of studios, not just filmation and and you know, let's talk about uh, you know, various shows. I've got Electra Woman and Dyna Girls coming up in the next issue mm-hmm. um, with an interview with Judy Strangis. And um, I am about to start working on the Dynamut Blue Falcon <laughs> one. And then right after that is Bigfoot and Wild Boy <laughs> and uh, so forth. But in between those, there's a two-parter that I'm like super super proud of because no one's ever written about this I've got a two part article coming up in I think it's issues 9 and 10 or 10 and 11 mm-hmm. two part article on the Saturday morning preview specials oh yeah, yeah. 
that used to air the Friday night or the Thursday night before the new season started. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my typical super in-depth articles um, that you know goes in and I interview as many people as I can find, and it covers covers all sorts of cool stuff, uh, you know, and, and photos that that are that I've unearthed that are just amazing. And uh, and and let me tell you, those preview specials. If you thought Croft Croft shows were were drug induced and super weird, those preview specials were just about as weird as as one can get. Oh, I love them. Um, I love them every year. I I, I yeah. poured over TV Guide and you know it's like, and I watched those shows, and I was a Saturday morning junkie. I was totally there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know. And, funny because as a kid you don't think oh this makes no sense this is so weird why is why is this happening and, and you know as an adult you kind of looked at it and you're like what were they smoking yeah uh, but, but i didn't care it's like because they got so excited they go and now we're going to have a clip of a new show from filmation right. you know it's like oh good you know it's like or oh no if you you know i have to say this since you said do animators hate why do animators or animation fans hate filmation i'll have to admit i was in that category uh but i'd watch the stuff as a kid now i love it you know and it's like i've developed a big appreciation for all the american studios even if they outsourced it during that time 60s 70s 80s you know it's like because just the dedication to continue doing all that stuff all those years you know it's it's amazing yeah yeah i there's very few animated studios from the 70s and 80s that I wouldn't sit down and watch everything that that they had and, and find something to enjoy. Um, one of the interesting things about working on this, uh, this preview special stuff, though, because remember, came from Montana, got one station, <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't always see everything. And beyond that, um, we, I watched it all on a black and white TV. Yeah. So, so most of the stuff I never saw in color until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what's surprising is the amount of live action material that was on Saturday mornings that people just don't talk about, mm-hmm. uh, or that don't have huge fan bases because they didn't, the, the studios didn't last, or never went into syndication, or whatever else like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I'm working on these preview specials, and I'm like, wait a minute, NBC only had one cartoon show on in you know 1976 or 1977, whichever one it was, yeah. and everything else was live action, everything. <laughs> and um, you know, you had shows like Run Joe Run, yeah, uh, Big John, Little John, mm-hmm. which was about a it was about a little kid who would would grow into or I don't know whether it was a little kid that would grow into an adult or an adult that would grow into a little kid but um, it it was one or the other it was Sherwood Schwartz so it was always something goofy (laughs) yeah 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 Um, and you know so you had all these all these like live and then you know multiple craft shows and and uh, and there was there was so much more live action um, 
material on than most people remember there yeah. being on. Well, there's even uh, like in the news, you know, the little segments between the shows and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and you know, we talk about animation being sent overseas. Well, that's that's another example of how animators were being put out of business was through the live action shows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to say that filmation didn't do its own live action shows. Uh, and, you know, Hanna-Barbera didn't do that many, but <laughs> Legends of the Superheroes! <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, Banana Splits and the Skatebirds and the things like that. They, they did a few, but anyway. <laughs> right, right, right. They, they, they did some of them, yeah. but, uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't as much. Right. Filmation but, uh, and definitely Croft had more. <laughs> so. Yeah, Croft Croft was just almost nothing. But yeah. you know they they had they had some animation, but um, uh, you know Filmation only did a few live action, um, and then uh, you had companies. Um, uh, who did Big John, Little John? Well, I don't know who did that because like, I think Sherwood Schwartz just sold it to the network and it was put yeah, on Saturday was, morning instead the, of the prime it, time. <laughs> it was it was D'Angelo and Redwood Productions. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, D'Angelo, when we were working on uh, when I was at BCI Eclipse, here's here's a little tidbit for you. When we were, <laughs> uh, I was at BCI Eclipse and we were working on the filmation stuff and we were getting near the end of it we were like well what else can we do that's in this vein and so we started approaching uh schwartz and we approached d'angelo's heirs and so forth about doing stuff like big john little john and um you know some of the other live action shows to see if we could license those out and it unfortunately never went anywhere well big john Uh, little john did eventually come out on dvd i don't know what label put it out but uh and the hudson brothers razzle dazzle show did come out i do have that (laughs) yeah yeah i mean there is some weird stuff that came out but we were trying to we were trying to put all of it out right run jump run and you know all those right um you know and unfortunately a lot of that stuff whether it's live action or or animated, it's probably just never going to be seen again. Yeah, because it's either too esoteric and odd. Yeah, um, or or it's um, you know, I mean, like like most people don't know what Run Joe Run is or West Wind right. or you know any of those things, and they're they're. It, it's it's they're odd yeah um you know or you've got stuff like the emergency plus one which was based on emergency well emergency may rerun on me tv but who's going to buy the cartoon yeah (laughs) you know you and i would and and a couple hundred other you know animation historians and that would be about it right and so so they look at this and say, "Well, why would we even put it on Netflix, or why would we put it on on um, uh, why why should we put it on streaming or something like that?" Right. Um, you know, and I maintain that the, that if they put 
you know, a whole box set together of everything, then they might be able to sell it, you know. Right. Macduff and Talking Duck. Monster Squad certainly would have an audience. Yeah. Uh, Monster Squad, I would think, would, would be a pretty good hit. Right. Um, but the kids from Caper or the Red Hand Gang or something like yeah. that, it's just like most people don't have a clue what they are. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, like, there's no way that they would that they would sell to today's yeah. audience. The one I'd always want, and it's probably would be a licensing nightmare, so it'd never come out as Curiosity Shop. You know, with Chuck Jones yeah. and, you know, maybe the Chuck Jones puppet parts, but I know that they uh, got various segments from all over the world for that show, and so there's probably rights issues galore yeah. on that. So. <laughs> yep, yep. But um, I have, like, one 17-minute segment that I downloaded off of YouTube, <laughs> and I'm like, well, that might be the most I'll ever get. <laughs> you might you might have to live with just that. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, um, well, um, we've talked quite a bit here, and, you know, uh, just wanted to know if there's anything you wanted to plug. I know you've been saying retro fan, and I love that magazine, so keep writing for it. And <laughs> uh, anything else you'd like to plug before we go? Well, uh, I, you know, if you're interested in my career or following what I'm doing, uh, I do have a website, ndmangles.com. And you just have to spell it right. It's like angels with an M in front of it. <laughs> um, and uh, I update that pretty frequently with what I'm working on. Um, a couple of the projects that I'm I'm working on for the future. I am in the early stages of working on a second book about filmation. Cool. Uh, and this one would be kind of like a complete index slash behind the scenes from the animator side of things. So, you know, creating the Filmation Generation was really about the business side of Saturday morning. But it didn't talk a lot about the creative side mm-hmm. of Saturday morning. So this would be like complete episode guides to everything that Filmation ever did, along with stories from people who worked on it about how they created the shows. So that's uh, that's on my plate for the future. <laughs> uh, I, I'm also working on a book about the stage productions of Stephen King. Wow! Of, of which there's, you know, everyone knows about Carrie the musical, but uh, you know, do they know about Eyes of the Dragon that was done in <laughs> Norway or the the you know um, Middle Eastern version of Misery? Or, huh. or uh, I didn't. The, the, the shining the opera, uh, you know. So, so there's been about forty or fifty different Stephen King stage productions over wow. the years, and so I'm doing a book about those. Hmm. And um, just for those people who think that like my career hasn't been strange enough, <laughs> and uh, and then I'm also uh, I got a job at the end of last year. I'm writing six uh, teenage or preteen young adult graphic novels for kids that are kind of retelling fairy tales in completely modern uh, modern eras, like they happen now. Oh, cool. um, and. Uh, 
so those are those are kind of fun. I've written a couple of those, and I, I have uh, I, I have six of them total to write. And then if the series does well, then I'll continue past that. Hmm. So I'm so I'm you know I, I have my feet in a bunch of different worlds. I'm still still writing comics when I can. Uh, last year, of course, I did Wonder Woman '77 meets the Bionic Woman, <laughs> which was the first meeting between Linda Carter's Wonder Woman and Lindsay Wagner's Bionic Woman. And that was uh, a huge hit. So, of course, they've never greenlit a sequel. <laughs> who, who likes to make money? <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, so I'm still doing some comics, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm still doing some books, and I'm still, like, at this weird intersection of comics and Hollywood and uh, if I can get this other filmation project going, uh, the other DVD project going, then I'll still be doing some of that. Cool. You know, it's 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 a strange thing when when I say that that the creators of these animated series had no idea that their work would survive for forty years past them. <laughs> I'm 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 kind of this this weird. I'm their spawn. <laughs> you know? Oh no! I, I, I am, and you are too. You know? Yes, we are. We are what that work spawned. Right. Their work affected us so much. Right. That we want to spend our days reliving it and and keeping it keeping its its legacy intact. Right. <laughs> you know it. what. What I did as a kid when I was ten isn't as important as to what I watched when I was a kid when I was ten, <laughs> because it wasn't just me that was watching it; it was millions of kids that were watching it, and it affected millions of lives. And so, you know, when we keep this legacy intact, we're we're yes, it's it's pop culture, but it's. Uh, one of the words in pop culture is culture, mm -hmm. and it's the culture. It's the culture that that helped raise us. Mm -hmm. That's the culture that helped teach us, and it's super important that we uh, that we give it its due. Yep, I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you. Let me, you. Let me climb down off my soapbox. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, if somebody wants to uh, get a hold of you, besides the website, uh, what's the best way? Uh, just on the website or on Facebook or what? Yeah, yeah. On on the website there is a uh, there's a, a link to email me, um, and then I'm on Facebook as well. Um, if you uh, if you don't have any friends in common with me, I may not approve your <laughs> your Facebook request immediately. So send a message first, right? And tell tell me why, you know. And um, <laughs> but otherwise, uh, I'm I'm usually pretty good on there. Uh, I am. Uh, not as political as most people these days, but uh, but you know I am uh, I am very much um, uh, I, I, I am I never mentioned in here, but I'm openly gay, um, and so I'm very much pro diversity mm -hmm. and pro uh, you know it's why some of these some of these moves that filmation made were so important to me right. was was seeing a world that reflected the world around me. Um, 
And, uh, you know, so if you follow me, if you follow me on any social media platform, you will see me being very pro-diversity. Um, but otherwise, I, 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 you know, I talk about everything from music and Broadway and uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, to animation to superheroes. A lot of Wonder Woman stuff. Yay. <laughs> uh, you know, so. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being my guest today, Andy, and uh, I'm looking forward. Uh, uh, I can't talk. Uh, I am looking forward to all your projects that are coming out soon. Well, thank, thank you, Mark. And um, what what is your next book? My next book. Uh, well, there's a few in the pipeline. Probably the Monkey Solo book is closest to being published, but uh, there's a Warren Kremer book, and I'm still working on the Total Television Scrapbook, which is a sequel to my other Total Television book, working with the daughter of Buck Biggers, and she submitted a lot of cool stuff, so I'm finishing well, that. That sounds, so. that sounds great. I look forward to them, too, Mark. All right. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Andy Mangles, for being my special guest. Episode number 65 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. of your loot.